John 11. John 11, we're in verses 38 to 57 this morning. I don't know about you, but I have never personally been a very big fan of boxing. Boxing did have its heyday when it was a big sport. I have an uncle who who loves boxing, even to this day. I personally, I just don't understand it. I don't understand the draw, what's interesting about it. I don't understand the finer points of boxing. In fact, personally, I don't find it intriguing at all. If anything, at times, I find it a little humorous. I find it funny whenever I'm flipping through the channels and I, I happen upon a, a weigh-in for a big fight. And you know, a weigh-in where, where, where these two men who are going to fight, they, they stand next to each other and they try to look as big as they can. And they're standing about this far away from each other and they're just staring into each other's eyes. They're trying to look tough. They're trying to intimidate the other individual. When I see that type of thing, it doesn't intimidate me at all. If anything, I, I chuckle at it. But in the weeks leading up to a fight, you'll see this way and you'll, you'll hear bold statements as one fighter says this and the other fighter comes back at him. How bad they're going to beat the other opponent, how much greater they are. Then it comes time for the fight itself. See, it's one thing to talk a big game. It's one thing to talk tough, to make guarantees. It's another thing entirely to step into that ring and to back up these statements that you have made with action. And if you don't, then you look like a fraud. If you don't, then everyone knows that you cannot back up what you have said. Bold statements must be backed up by bold action. As you've been working your way through John 11 over the past few weeks, we've sensed the rising tension in this chapter. Jesus has made many bold statements. In the first 16 verses of John 11, tragedy strikes as someone who is dearly beloved by Jesus, Lazarus, dies. Yet even as this devastating news reaches Jesus, even in that moment, he makes a bold promise. As in verse 4, he says this, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This sickness is not unto death. Even as Jesus says that, within the next few sentences, he goes on to tell his disciples, Lazarus has died. And yet here, Jesus has said that this sickness will not end in death. What is Jesus going to do? On top of everything else that is going on right in front of us, in this chapter, Thomas and the other disciples open our eyes to the tension that is behind the scenes. Not only is there the tension about this promise that Jesus has made, but there's the tension of the book as Jesus is moving closer to Jerusalem. There's danger at hand. The religious leaders have zealously 
desire to kill Jesus, and they have made that known. As Jesus moves to Bethany, Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany in verses 17 to 37, it becomes clear that Jesus was right. Lazarus has been dead. In fact, he's been dead for four days. Here in these verses, Jesus makes another strikingly bold statement as he is speaking to Martha, and he makes this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This morning as we come to the end of this chapter, many of us, probably most of us, hopefully all of us, like Martha and Mary, we know who Jesus is. We believe in him. But as we come to John eleven thirty eight to 57 this morning, the question remains, what will Jesus do? As we open our Bibles this morning, we wait with bated breath. The stage is set as Jesus stands ready to take on death itself. He's made bold statements. Now can he back it up? Does Jesus truly have power, not just over the wind and the waves, but over life itself? See, this is the question here in John 11. Because as we come to John 11, it is not just Lazarus who faces death. All of us face the very same fate. We are mortal men. And the reality that Lazarus and Mary and Martha face, we all will face. The question is, can death be defeated? This morning in this, chat, in this passage, we will triumphantly see that death can be defeated. That Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life. That Jesus does have power over death. And because of that, you and I have hope. This morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll just have two points. We'll see the climax of John 11 and then the falling action of John 11. First thing that we see is the climax. Verses... 37 to 44. And the first thing that we see is a victorious tomb. We'll start in verse 37. It gives us a little bit of a, a running start. As the crowd was gathered, some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. As we pick up here in John eleven thirty eight, we find that Jesus is once again groaning within him. We talked last week that that statement, that groaning within him, is the idea of anger. There is righteous anger that is rising up within Jesus at this situation. Here in verse 38, Jesus is moved once again to anger. 
verse 33, he was moved to anger by the reaction of Mary and the Jewish mourners who were weeping uncontrollably as if they had no hope. In verse 33, it is the the thought of sin and death and its consequences and the hopeless wailing that ignite Jesus' anger. Here in verse 38, Jesus is once again moved to anger, not just by the thought of death, but as he comes into the very presence of death. As Jesus stands here this morning, in front of him stands a triumphant tomb that is filled with the decaying body of Lazarus. The stone is in place. It is locked. Lazarus is dead. Death has triumphed. The tomb is full. In fact, John goes out of his way in these verses to make sure that we as the readers understand that death has claimed Lazarus. He's gone. He's dead. Verse 38, John reminds us where we are. We are at a tomb. Verse 39, John refers to Martha as the sister of him who was dead. It's the only place in the chapter where he refers to her as that. Everywhere else, she's just Martha. Here, she's Martha, the sister of him who was dead. There's a point being made. Lazarus is dead. Verse 41, they take away the stone from the place where what? Where the dead man was lying. Again, Lazarus is dead. If you haven't gotten it, if you haven't understood that yet, if that hasn't been clear to this point in the chapter, John here is hammering it home. Lazarus is dead. He is gone. There is no hope. Death has won. The grave is full. Lazarus has no hope of resuscitation. Lazarus needs resurrection. As you move to verses 39 to 42, you see an open tomb. Jesus stands before this tomb, a stone lays against it, and verse 39, Jesus says, Take away the stone. Jesus here begins his assault against the grave by having the stone removed. What was once an impenetrable tomb now stands open and exposed. Lazarus is still dead, but at least now the tomb is open. As Jesus commands the stone removed, though, Martha, surprisingly, at least probably to us as we work in our way through this chapter, Martha speaks up. She objects. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, By this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for days. It's not that Martha does not believe that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, her bold confession in John 11, 27 clearly expresses her confidence, her continued confidence, even in the face of Lazarus' death and who Jesus is and what he can do. It's clear here that she does not expect it. She believes that Jesus can do it. She believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. She believes that Jesus can do whatever needs to be done, but she doesn't expect him to do it. It is nowhere in her mind 
She's been comforted with the hope of seeing Lazarus again one day. She has no expectation of seeing Lazarus again today. I don't see Martha's objection as a sign that her faith is faltering or weak. If anything, I see it as a testament of her faith. Martha's faith is not here based on any kind of expected favor. She does not think, Jesus is going to do this, therefore I'm going to believe him. She simply believes him. Removing the stone from the tomb makes perfect sense to us. We know the story. We know what Jesus is doing. We see what is coming and we know exactly what is going on. But Martha, Mary, and the Jews that are gathered don't have the same perspective that we do. Jesus' request likely seems unnecessary, maybe even demeaning or offensive. I mean, just imagine coming to the grave of a loved one and they say, dig them up. Open it. Why? For what purpose? Although Martha, Mary, and the Jews may not know what Jesus is doing, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Is that not often what we find even in our own lives? Sometimes. I would say often even. God is at work in ways that we cannot even fathom. Sometimes we are called to do things that make no sense to us. God always knows what he is doing. See, before Lazarus can walk out of the tomb, the stone must be removed. I remember in 2014, I believe it was, as Chris and I were working at, uh, in Indianapolis at Good News Ministries. And I had, uh, we, we loved where the Lord had us. We loved the ministry that we were in. And I remember one day as I was, uh, I got home from work, or it might have been a Saturday, and I got a call, and it was Pastor Humber. And I answered, and he's just checking in. How are you doing? Good, doing well. How are things going in Altoona? Good, good, good. Hey, do you know anyone who'd be interested in an assistant pastor position? No, I'll, I'll keep my ears open. I'll let you know if I come across anyone. A few weeks later, he called me again. It might have been a few days. It was, it was a little while later. Hey, anyone come up? No? I can't think of anyone. At this point, I was a little bit confused. Why, why does he... Are they that desperate for people that he needs recommendations from me? I don't, I don't know anybody. They live next to a college. Surely there's someone there. Why is he calling me? I don't have any connections. Finally, on the third time, he called, and he finally came right out and said, Are you interested? I had completely missed it. It made no sense to me. Why would he call me? It was completely off my radar. It's not that I wasn't willing to consider it or that I didn't, uh, it wasn't something that I was willing to do. It's just that it was nowhere on my radar. It never crossed my mind. I think that's the situation we see here. 
It's not that Martha and Mary don't believe that Jesus can do this. It's just nowhere in their mind they cannot possibly fathom what is coming. Therefore, it makes no sense to move the stone. Another illustration that you might be aware of or, or might have, have be able to um, identify with. Uh, but think of a surprise party. Have you ever been a part of a surprise party or, or specifically the one tasked with keeping the person who's going to be surprised busy so that the surprise can happen? That's a hard job. It's a lot harder than, than you get credit for. You have to keep them busy. You have to keep them away. And, and often at some point throughout the day, you'll probably have to come up with something that makes absolutely no sense. Hey, before we go home, let's go get gas. We just got gas. Well, we need gas again. Why do we need gas again? Uh, we just, we, we need an extra 10 minutes. That's why we need gas again. <laughs> it makes no sense to the person who can't see what's going on. But to you, you know exactly what's going on. And there is a purpose in what you're doing. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Jesus responds to Martha's objection in verse 40. He said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Martha, you say that you believe me, not trust me. What's interesting is that we don't have recorded for us anywhere where Jesus says this to Martha. Jesus' words here could simply be a summation of their earlier conversation in verses 21 to 27. It's very similar to what Jesus says in verse 4 when his disciples and the messenger, who, who comes from Martha and Mary, brings the news that Lazarus is sickness. Jesus says something very similar to the messenger. Maybe that messenger brought the message back to Martha. Maybe Jesus said it at some time that is not recorded for us. But the point is, it's clear now, if it were not before, that everything that has happened in John 11 has been happening purposefully for the glory of God and the Father and the Son. The believer whose faith is not swayed by circumstances will often see the glory of God as they look back and wonder, wonder, because God is always at work. Right. Keeping the right perspective when I don't see the whole perspective the whole picture helps me to look back with clarity, to rejoice in the glory of God who always sees and always knows. Believe me. Believe me. Remove the stone. Believe me and see the glory of God. Trust me, Martha. I know what I am doing. The stone is removed from the exit of Lazarus' tomb, and Jesus offers up a public prayer of thanksgiving to his Father. They take away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. From verse 4, from the very beginning, it's been clear that Jesus is acting in accordance with the Father's will. 
is to the glory of God and the Son. And now as Jesus stands before the open tomb, he offers one last prayer of thanksgiving. What's unique about this prayer is that Jesus tells us exactly why he is praying it. It's for the benefit of those who are listening. As they hear this prayer, Jesus giving glory to God, Jesus' prayer before, coupled with the work that is to follow, it will testify powerfully to the indisputable truth that Jesus is sent from the Father and that he works in perfect harmony with his will. Jesus is not at odds with God. Jesus and God are in perfect harmony. We stand here at the end of verse 42. The grave closed in triumph has been opened. The stone has been removed and the Lord of life stands at the doorstep of death. As we come to verse 43, we come to the climax of this chapter. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, stands at the opening of Lazarus' tomb and he cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! There is no fear or hesitation in Jesus' voice. It is loud and it is clear. The volume of Jesus' voice audibly represents the power of Jesus' voice. It is this voice that has created the universe, and it is this voice that calls Lazarus from death to life. John 11.43 is a foretaste. It's a preview of what will happen at the last resurrection. It's interesting, the, in John 5.25, notice the similarities here. In John 5.25, in discussion with the Jews, after healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, looking forward to the last day, this, this is what Jesus says in, that, in, in, in John uh, 5.25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. There's a day that is coming. And as Lazarus here hears the voice of the Son of God and he lives, so one day all who are in Christ will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. As Lazarus walks out of the tomb, we rejoice, not just because it is a triumphant moment, not just because Lazarus lives, but because it demonstrates your hope and my hope. Because Lazarus lives, we might live. Because Lazarus lives, Jesus has the power over death as it has been proven. If he can raise Lazarus, he can raise me. Death has been defeated. Jesus is greater. Our hope is sure. I find it interesting that Jesus includes the spectators here as he instructs them to go and to take the grave clothes off of Lazarus. They get to feel him. They get to touch him. They get to see that he is not a, a ghost or a spirit. He is real. Look what Jesus has done. Feel and see glory. Lazarus has no need for grave clothes because the grave has no more power over Lazarus. He who is dead is alive. 
Praise the Lord. This is the moment that this entire chapter has been building towards. And as we come to the climax of John 11 with anticipation, we are not disappointed. The bold statements that Jesus has put forth all throughout this chapter have been backed up by remarkable action. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the resurrection. He truly is the life. And those who put their hope in him will not be put to shame. At this point, I would simply encourage those of you who are in Christ, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope regardless of the circumstances of this life. Even when they don't make sense. God's in complete control and he knows exactly what he is doing. If God commands you to open a grave, open it and trust that he knows what he is doing. Know that you will look back, you will rejoice in the glory of your God. He's a powerful God. He's a wise God. He's a God who always knows what he is doing and he is always working for our good and for his glory. So come to verses 45 to 57. We move from the climax of John 11 to the falling action. As you come to verse 45, probably the most surprising word of John 11, 45 is the word many. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. You see, this crowd that has been here for days mourning with Mary. All of them have been there to mourn. All of them know that Lazarus has been dead for four days. All of them have seen what Jesus has done in raising Lazarus. They have heard what he has said. They have seen what he has done. But not all of them believe. How can all see this, but not all believe this? How can this be? How can you possibly see Lazarus walk from that tomb at the command of Jesus and not believe? As sad as that is, the response is consistent with what we see all throughout Jesus' ministry. There are always two responses when it comes to Jesus. People either believe him or they reject him. We see this at the pool of Bethesda as a lame man walks. We see it in Jerusalem as the blind man sees, and now we see it in Bethany as the dead man lives. In fact, as it goes on into verse 46, the implication seems to be not only do these people not believe, but they are actually turned against Jesus. Notice this, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen things Jesus did believed in him. They believed, but some of them, they're contrasted with those who believe. Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. They're contrasted with those who believe and they choose to go to Jesus' enemies. Not only do they not believe, 
but somehow they're turned against him. As this report reaches Jerusalem, the religious leaders jump to action. The Sanhedrin is called to session. The most powerful Jewish body under Roman rule gathers to consider this issue. Jesus' influence is growing and they must act before it is too late. In fact, they say at the end of verse 47 into 48, this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. What is most sad and scary is not their opposition to Jesus, but their reason for opposing Jesus. Notice that these religious leaders do not argue with the fact that Jesus has done amazing works. They don't argue with his miracles. They admit he's done them. He's a powerful man. He's done some great things. Their main concern is the Roman government and how it will react. What is perhaps most alarming in this in these verses is the reality that these religious leaders are more concerned with offending Rome than with offending God. The very God that they claim to serve, the very God that they claim to love, the very God that they claim to know. The circumstances in which they find themselves have blinded them from the truth. Their greatest fear is that Rome might take away their position of authority, might take away their place in the empire as a semi-autonomous nation. And because of that, they give no thought to the possibility that the powerful signs that Jesus does might actually testify to what he says. They don't question his signs, but they're not willing to consider them. For them stands the Son of God, their Messiah, and they are blinded to it because they cannot see past their own ambition and hate. They are so concerned with temporal issues that they fail to see the eternal significance of what is right in front of them. Men, we tend to have this problem with missing the obvious that is right in front of us sometimes, don't we? I can think of many times my wife has asked me to go grab something from the fridge or the store, and she's told me exactly where it is, and I look and I don't see it. I'll come back. It's not there. It's there. It's not. I looked. She goes, and sure enough, it's right where it was. (laughs) At least she says it was. The problem is that it was not there. The problem is that I I had something else on my mind or I wasn't, it wasn't my main concern at the moment and it should have been. And so I miss what is right in front of me. These religious leaders have the wrong priority and they have missed the obvious. And this leads us into one of the most mind-blowingly ironic statements in a book that is full of ironic statements. Caiaphas's prophecy in verses 49 to 53. Caiaphas, speaking for himself what is best for him and 
what he perceives you best for him and the other priests in the nation actually prophesies of what God is doing. The intent of Caius' speech is to propose that they kill Jesus in order to save the nation of Israel from Rome. Just pause and think about that. This is, this is Caiaphas' plan. Caiaphas proposes that they kill Jesus in order to save themselves. Can you get any more ironic than that? Kill Jesus in order to save the nation of Israel from Rome. But instead, he unknowingly here unfolds the plans of God, the coming substitutionary atonement of Christ, who will save the nation by dying. Caiaphas proposes that they kill Jesus in order to save themselves from the wrath of Rome. But God has sent Jesus to die to save men from the wrath of God. As Romans 5, 18-21 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Caiaphas here, as wicked and as depraved and as twisted as he is and as his plan is, it falls directly into the perfect plans of God. As we move towards the cross, God's purpose in the cross is being revealed little by little. It's becoming clear not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus is doing. Verse 51 makes it clear that Caiaphas thinks he's speaking for himself. Now this he did not say in his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas can't even fathom what he is saying. And yet he's right. Because Jesus will die. The one for the many. She comes to verses 54 to 57. John is moving us towards the final Passover of the book. Once again, the tension is at an all-time high. Plans have been made, a scheme is in motion, a trap is set. Everyone is looking for Jesus. Those who believe him long to hear from him, to learn from him, to see him. And those who hate him long to capture and to kill him. As we come to the end of John 11, the climax of Jesus' public ministry and the resurrection of Lazarus now sets the stage for the culmination of Jesus' life, for the book of John, for human history. As Caiaphas so eloquently and accidentally put it, Jesus died for you. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. 
And the reality is that our sin not only separates us from God, our sin sets God against us. For God is holy and God is just and sin must be dealt with. But as John has already told us, God so loves the world that he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for you and me. Jesus. Just as Caiaphas proposed, Jesus died in your place. He took your punishment, your death. He paid your debt that you owe. He satisfied God's wrath and he offers you life if you will believe. See, this morning you cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn God's grace. You can only accept it in Christ alone. The question this morning is not what you can do for God. But will you accept what God has done for you in Christ? As Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live. Do you believe this? We've seen all throughout the book, there are two reactions to Jesus. You either believe and embrace him or you reject him. And the question this morning at the end of John 11, as we come, as Lazarus has been raised from the dead, as the plans have been set, as Caiaphas has, has so eloquently and accidentally prophesied, the question is, won't you believe? Do you believe? Have you believed? Is there a time in your life where you've come to the place where you realized that you are a sinner? That you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? If not, I would implore you this morning to come. Come and believe. Will you be like the crowd who sees and believes? Or like the crowd who sees and yet still chooses to ignore and to reject? This morning in this passage, we have seen both Jesus' power and God's love. Jesus' power is on full display in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And in Caiaphas' accidental prophecy, we get a peek into what is coming in the plans of God. In just a second, we're going to close by singing the song once again, It Is Not Death to Die. What hope we have in Christ. <laughs>